This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Realism in F20. Dummy Restaurant Tomb Raiders. Narrative Traditions. And Xenomorph Theosophists. Robin is known for his stylish convention shirts. But you know who's really stylish? Who's that, Robin? Lumberjacks and bears in the Yukon. Mm. So say our friends at Atlas Games in the form of their new game, Yukon Salon, a quick, humorous, and family-friendly card game that comes in a tin. Oh, yeah, that's the one where you're a stylist in the frozen north and your clients are bears and lumberjacks. Hairdo cards rotate so they're beards for the lumberjacks or hairstyles for the bears. You match each style in your repertoire to just the right client and roll to see if they like it. If you fail, you make outrageous claims to get a bonus and keep them from walking out. Bears have hair, lumberjacks have beards, and they both need your help. Yukon Salon is available now, so take your place at the frontier of style today. You can learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The thump of dice, the rattle of miniatures, and the distinctive vibration of an all-request episode usher us into the beautiful parquet flooring of the ultra-modern gaming hut, and uh, Peter Frampton is waiting on his gatefold cover to come alive, and uh, because this is an all-request episode, let's gaze over to beloved Patreon backer Chris Camfield, who says, just listening to the podcast this morning, and I want to say, go on, I would love to hear you and Ken Talk about applying realism as a conceptual frame in F20 games. And Ken, I think you're the one who got us into this because <laughs> I think we were talking about F20 and, and you just sort of as a let's not talk about this said, well, you could apply F20 as uh, realism as a frame to F20, but let's not talk about that. That's not what this segment is about. And Chris has cleverly called your bluff because I kind of think that F20 realism would be neither realism nor F20. So, uh, Ken, I, I hope you can start digging us out of this. Out of this hole that yes. I have casually tossed us into? Yeah. All right. First of all, obviously, you are correct, Robin. The entire conceit of F20 is not just unrealism, but almost an anti-realism in that it posits the, first of all, the elevation of mere physical force and uh, capability over any sort of interiority. And it also posits the attainment of superhuman powers as a, not just a feature, but the feature, the defining feature of the game. And so without those two qualities, it is, as you point out, harder to say that you have an F20 game. And likewise, realism, of course, if it means anything, it means applying aspects of the real world as a narrative filter, as a uh, structure, as restraining walls on the narrative so that you don't get wildly off doing other things. Now, of course, realism contains within it lots of other things. There is a lovely argument that I really wish I could uh, remember who made that all literature, including realistic literature in the West, is a subset of the Gothic. And so 
uh, that should let you know. Also, obviously, if you believe that the real world contains, oh, I don't know, God, then you have a different take on realism than, say, uh, Richard Dawkins or one of those guys. So realism itself is sort of a, a muzzy category, and even literary critics have to incorporate things like magic realism when they talk about people's lived experience that is not uh, horribly constrained by having gone to a prep school in New England. So the existence of realism does not immediately eliminate the existence of fancy dreams, love, and other magic as we experience it. It just is not fireballs and uh, levitation necessarily. Right. We, we could run out the clock on this segment and then we pretend that we answer the question just right. by parsing different meanings of the word realism. Yeah. Part, I think, of why the anti-realism of F20 is intrinsic to it is that it has high gaming value. That the idea that, well, kind of anything goes uh, allows anybody to make up something on the spot that within the rough loosey goosey universe of an F20 world, uh, which sometimes is the exquisitely detailed F20 world, like the Forgotten Realms. But nonetheless, you know, if you want to have, you know, a, a dragon with a machine gun show up, people might wrinkle their noses at you, but you can do it. And players mm -hmm. uh, are unbounded by uh, reality and, and often any real world culture enable to, you know, say what they want to play, what they want to do, and what can happen in an F20 world. And so, so which realism mm -hmm. uh, of the many uh, possible realisms would you uh, start uh, applying were you to apply a realism to, to F20? And this is where things like the rule set begin to help or harm. For example, there is a very long running, very down to the individual rocks, low fantasy at best, game world out there called Harn that is vaguely based on actual land policy in England uh, in the Middle Ages. There are many other books out there that will uh, purport to teach you how to apply actual medieval thought to uh, fantasy games, you know, reaching uh, Ars Magica, at which point you're pretty much out of F20. But it is this sort of notion of a conceptual framework or a conceptual restraint on the basic F20 ingredient that gets to when you talk about something being a conceptual frame. So in the same way that the Ultimates Iron Man is not the Marvel movie Iron Man or the, the original comics Iron Man, but a an arms dealer who has a, uh, a piece of equipment that is as complex and sophisticated as a jet fighter and therefore needs a hundred people to maintain. And there are questions about financing and, and government involvement and all these sorts of real world questions that are orthogonal at best to the question of should Iron Man shoot the Mandarin with his repulsor cannon, then that is what you're applying a realist frame to comics. You can do the same thing with Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, Susie Yee, for a long time, had a, uh, a company called Expeditious Retreat Press that did a remarkable job of taking real-world questions of plate tectonics and trade routes and other stuff and giving you a framework and even legal codes by the time I think uh, her, her books ran out or she got smart and got out of the business. But even legal codes, uh, what happens, for example, in a world where you do have resurrection? What does that what does that mean? And thought about those sorts of questions and a game that interrogates those questions and that also, I would argue, privileges other ways of gaining importance in the world than just leveling up and becoming more ridiculously powerful is a game that moves you into that 
conceptual framework. And you uh, gave a little bit of the store away or my store, my, my corner of the store, my uh, little um, uh, pop-up shop, uh, when you said uh, anything unconstrained by real world history. And as you know, probably deliberately, that's a red flag to me. So when I ran my most recent F20 game, I constrained it, not a gigantic amount, but a good bit by putting it in the Hellenistic era and trying to justify the ridiculous excesses of F20 and of the sort of anime flair that I was putting on it as well with appeals to either Hellenistic history or Hellenistic literary tradition. And that provided, I think, more things to hang on to and a tighter conceptual frame for the players than if we'd suddenly had dragons with machine guns showing up or visited some land that was run by beholders or whatever else. The the notion of a world that is primarily human and that any uh, elves or dwarves are sort of weird exceptions that are exciting and strange and heroic. The fact that the world is not full of 90th level spellcasters, that if you got up to that level, then you are legitimately capable of overturning a great empire. I think that is the framework that I... Uh, I have applied in my most recent F20 game. And, you know, since it ran for four years and everyone got out successfully, having broken the Moria Empire asunder in India, I think I ran it pretty successfully. So I think you can absolutely apply elements of real world consequences and the notion that the world is not an F20 world. You are F20 heroes in a real world in the same way that Heracles, if he existed, or Hank Aaron in the real world was kind of an F20 hero in the real world. And it was just really the job of the real world to try and paper over the explanation for why this immense hero was able to do such, such great things. And that's something that we encounter in myth. We encounter it in sports. We, uh, if we're stupid, encounter it in politics and the, this notion that there are in our, in our world, People of extra heroic stature is still a realistic thing because people believe that and act like that. Even if, you know, you, you examine the physics and no, oh, Hank Aaron did not have magic powers. He was simply almost impossible to strike out. That's, that's all Hank Aaron was just Batman. He was not Green Lantern. That makes him realistic. Well, Batman is also not realistic in, in the way that we're talking about. And so, uh, if you present a world that, uh, constrains the rest of the world and the heroes are breaking its bounds, and uh, expanding past it, I feel like that gets to the core fun of F20 in a way that just uh, romping around the Forgotten Realms and dodging, you know, uh, the 90th level Servants of Elminster does not. Right. And so notably, uh, one thing you did in your quest for realism is you kept it in uh, an era of pagan gods and mythology. And because if you're doing a medieval based realistic F20 game, uh, then you have the church and you have extreme constraint on most everybody's behavior. And even if you then say, well, you are the characters without constraint, uh, therefore you are uh, nobles or you are yourself running the church, that creates a web of obligation that I think a lot of players in F20 are not looking for. So you found an era where you could still have these sort of footloose uh, freebootery characters, and it wasn't uh, the medieval period. No, although obviously, you know, TSR, God bless them, did a D&D uh, handbook that was quite excellent 
about playing D&D characters in Charlemagne's times, in which you are assumed to be the equivalent for Charlemagne's paladins. And they did the same thing with King Arthur's knights. So there's medieval eras and even medieval spots in which you can posit that the existence of these sorts of larger-than-life heroes can be worked into the society, that the society can work its way around them. And you saw that even as late in the historical actual Middle Ages, as like the 12th century, when you have figures like William Marshall or Richard the Lionheart, and these are characters, and and Saladin to a a very large extent on the other side, um, these are characters who, even at the time, chroniclers are saying, well, we are out of superlatives. We can't explain how great William Marshall is. He's like Michael Jordan, and you'll understand that in 900 years. But right now, that's all we can say. He's Michael Jordan. We have no other grounds to explain how great William Marshall is. The same thing with the Arab Chronicles talking about Saladin. And so the same notion of category-breaking, larger-than-life heroes, to which the addition of fireballs, if you've set up the webs of obligation and the understanding of the universe correctly, add thrills, but do not break reality, because, of course, they didn't build crack the Chevaliers to uh, resist fireballs. There's only like two people in the world who can cast fireballs and you're one of them. So that's the sort of uh, thing that we're talking about or that I'm talking about. And that I think that those sorts of constraints make the game, uh, they, they serve the sort of, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, the sort of rampant egoism of players almost better than a world where, sure, you can cast fireballs. Anyone can cast fireballs. Come back when you're special, right? Right. And so switching to that, entails a surprising amount of scrubbing standard elements out of F20 because an assumption of most D&D editions is that, yes, there's lots of adventurers. Adventuring is a thing. People know about it. And there's an entire economy that caters to it. And so, therefore, there are magic item shops. And uh, there are, uh, as you suggest, there are magical defenses against things. Uh, and so you've got to look at everything that in the setting uh, that assumes that people or all of the players assumptions. So it's like, well, uh, can we, is there a magic item shop here in Constantinople? And your answer then has to be what, why would there be that? That's absurd. That wouldn't be existed. And, uh, but I want to swap this, uh, this sword that I got that isn't worth anything. Too bad. That's that's there's, there's not an economy surrounding the existence of Hercules and the, the Argonauts. You're it. And so you're going to have to look at a lot of things that players want to have in a a world, including, I think, any sequence of shopping (laughs) probably going to be off the off the books. And you'll as you go along, I think you'll be surprised by how much of that you have to do. And also, I think you will be surprised by how much the players, as much as they seem to want to exist in a world without responsibility or consequence freak out when they find out that they're the most important heroes in the world. <laughs> it it does create a little bit of en- enticing decision paralysis when they, when my players realized, Oh no, you legitimately could invade India. The, the seven of you, you could do that. That was a moment. I'm not denying it. And it was a great moment, I think for role-playing and, and for the, 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 the sort of vertiginous fun of, of the game. But um, uh, to your example about uh, magic item shops and upgrading your sword, there is a reason, let us say, that I ran my F20 game in 13th Age, which hand waves all of that and uh, does not imply this uh, degree of interlocked multi-tabular economy that, say, Dungeons & Dragons in its various editions does. Uh, 13th Age, money is pretty abstract. 
certainly treasure is irrelevant to your uh, upping and downing. And so you just spend it or, or on, you know, whatever your magic items improve with you. You do not have to swap out a plus one sword for a plus two sword. Lots of those decisions are made by the rule set. And I feel like people who want to play a, uh, a game more constrained by these sorts of things or less in, uh, less set in a forgotten realmsy sort of magic economy might do well to look at that game or at other games that similarly constrain that sort of background a la, I mean, I don't recommend anyone play chivalry and sorcery, but I think maybe take a look at it and see how they handled it because it's the same set of questions that's been asked. And even, even D and D has had to do it in things like, uh, those old, uh, green book historical games or in Ravenloft or other places where the core activity of you in the world is not interacting with it, but outstripping it. Right. Right. Um, and also another thing that's going to change radically under this version of F20 is your interactions with everyone else in the world. Because, you know, if you imagine and probably less, uh, you know, the Justice League of America showing up in town, but sort of a bunch of Mark Millar superheroes showing up in town, <laughs> everyone is going to be terrified of you. Right, yeah. People will uh, uh, do what you ask, uh, which will eliminate uh, many of the GM's uh, favorite uh, interactions with uh, walk-on characters. It'll be like, uh, you know, Yojimbo coming to town or the uh, man with no name. People will just flee at your approach and you will be uh, seen as a terrifying figure. Everybody who approaches you will want something from you. They'll have heard of you already and you uh, won't be anonymous. You will be the politics. You'll have responsibility for whether legions of people live or die. Yep. Uh, and so we can... Uh, easily see things shading into the uh, one uh, particular form of realism, which is revisionism, in which you look at all the downsides of these reassuring power fantasies in a world where they uh, really existed. And uh, everything of note, of course, has negative consequences. Yeah. I mean, the the, the moment in my F20 game, uh, my, my 13th age game, when the characters uh, arrived in Ptolemaic Egypt and realized that Ptolemy II, the richest and arguably most powerful king in, in the world or in the world known to them, was not just interested in them, but had a national security interest in them, was a moment to watch. Why is he not letting us have our skyship back? Oh, he'll let you have it back. He's just, you know, you know, keeping it safe so that other people don't steal it. And they were immediately suspicious as well. They should have been. And so they said, all right, all right, maybe we were going to screw around in Alexandria for a while, but we're everything we do is making you know waves we have to figure out one big score and get out of town and so they basically uh broke into the tomb of tanis and stole the ark of the covenant and then they ran away actually it was then stolen from them by a hilarious magician but that's a different point the point is that when they realized that they had reached a level of power that they were a national security concern created a interesting turn in the game that I feel like would not have happened if it had just been congratulations, your fourth level or fifth level, whatever level it was. Welcome to Alexandria. And, and I feel like that would have also been a great game. You can play a, a less realistic F20 game set in a historical city. Uh, again, it's been done many, many times, not just by me, but that moment of of connection to the world and responsibility is, I argue, the whole point of putting realism into the game is that it provides that responsibility, that that is the real realism, not the question of, oh, no, we're spending, you know, sesterces instead of gold pieces. We're worshiping Hermes instead of St. Cuthbert. No, this is this is the realism. Our decisions have consequences. We have legitimate power. 
we have to act like that. That's the realism. And you're absolutely correct. That is not for everybody. Yeah, it seems to me that what you're saying, Ken, is that with great power comes great responsibility. And Ken, when you start talking like Spider-Man, it's time for us to get our web slingers and swing over through this commercial to the next segment. Axis, mighty capital of the Dragon Empire. Markets flow with goods and gold. Ambitious nobles rise and fall. Knives flash in reeking alleys. While the metallic dragons who guard the Empire watch over it all. Something murderous lurks beneath the gladiatorial arena. And your adventurers are just the heroes to confront it. In Crown of Axis, an introductory 13th Age adventure by Wade Rocket from Pelgrane Press. Play as a one-shot or as a campaign starter. Customizable based on characters' icon relationships. Delve into danger by getting the PDF today. Cardus listeners can use the voucher code HASHCROWN21. That's CROWN21 to save... 15%. At PelgranePress.com slash shop. That's Crown of Access for 13th Age. The clinking of chisels, the dust in the air, the elderly person explaining that this was for ritual purposes welcome us once more into the archaeology hut. And in the archaeology hut, we've got some trenches dug and some uh, tents erected because beloved Patreon backer Christopher Melkus has asked, what are the risks involved in raiding old Chinese tombs while using dummy restaurants as fronts? And uh, he included a helpful economist article that is about that. It's not that Christopher Melkus has, you know, fallen and hurt himself while in a Chinese restaurant. This is a legitimate question, but he does want to know, could you potentially end up in some kind of netherworld or perhaps even an inner kingdom. Robin, I guess we start by acknowledging the wonderful economistness of this article about tomb robbers. China's tomb raiders are growing more professional. That's good to know. Maybe the, do they have like a test now or a? Yes, yeah, it's just like their productivity is increasing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> in the in the tomb robbing sector, they're up four point seven percent. A real threat to Vietnamese tomb robbers or whatever. Right, tomb robbing in general in China is uh, is up both in public consciousness and in the annals of crime. So this could also be ripped from the headline segment, could also be crime blotter. But since archaeology is in it, let's make it archaeology hut. So indeed, uh, there's this uh, gentleman uh, referred to in the article only as Mr. Wei, who uh, had a pancake shop, and it turned out that his pancake shop was within easy distance of some tombs and pagodas and temples. And uh, he was able to use that then to dig a subterranean tunnel where he and his crew then robbed these uh, sites of their uh, treasures. And, you know, he didn't start with the pancake shop and then go into tomb robbing because he'd already been busted for antiquities theft. This is a, a complicated heist ring in which he uh, bought a number of different restaurants or his gang had a number of different restaurants in order to tunnel under and uh, steal things. And he is operating in Shangxi province, which is the sort of ground zero for valuable antiquities in China. That's where the terracotta warriors are from, for example. But apparently this is a rising problem all across China. And uh, 
my guess is that uh, it, it turns out, Ken, that some police officials and other connected figures are involved in this highly illegal uh, trade. I'm, that I'm, under- shocked and, I'm shocked and amazed that in a communist country, a known tomb robber got a license to open a pancake shop next to a tomb without <laughs> police or government involvement. Why, it's almost as though the whole system's a giant racket, Robin. Yes, <laughs> and I, I would imagine any totalitarian system has the same same level of uh, no, corruption. Yes. If you no, I, I don't believe that it is China that is necessarily unique in the amount of tomb robbing that goes on. I mean, the the, the Nazis ran it through an academic uh, department because you know those Nazis loved the university. Yeah, but uh, it's basically the same thing. And yes, Mister Wei is one of I think the article said something like two thousand people that were arrested just in the last year for running a a scam like this, or I suppose tomb robbing in general. I don't think they all opened restaurants. I think. That might have been a Mr. Way speciality. Yeah, that seemed to be his specialty. Do you suppose he saw that? I forget the name of it, but it was like an Ealing Studios comedy about these British bank robbers that are running like a toy store or something next to a bank. I forget what it is, and there's a kid in it. Uh, there's an Edgar G. Robinson movie uh, that does that, actually. Right, yeah, okay. And Big Maybe Deal yeah, Madonna. It's, it's, a, yeah. it, it's a heist movie premise. It is. A, be- a beautiful heist movie premise. And in fact, apparently, the uh, there's been an, a resurgence of interest in tomb robbing. There's been... A couple of uh, popular fantasy novels called The Grave Robber's Chronicles and Ghost Blows Out the Light, uh, which I uh, presume to have sort of a modern day Indiana Jones thing about them. And uh, as authorities, some of them corrupt or want to do, they are blaming the media yep. for, for this increase. How, in how dare they blow stuff. this this uh, this tomb robbing thing out of proportion and make it look cool? I'm just glad that uh, no Chinese podcasters have gotten themselves in trouble by making tomb robbing look cool, Robin. That would be awful. Right. I, and apparently it's caused like a, a major rise in legitimate interest in uh, archaeology. And so there's like a live streamed well, excavation. I mean, in the same of, way that Howard Carter's slightly more legal tomb robbing did in, in the West in the 1920s. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> and, and we've uh, spoken in a previous segment, we should add that also the Chinese government slash corporate structure, which of course are intimately intertwined, uh, have been involved in forcibly repatriating Chinese antiquities that have uh, found their way through a previous spate of legalized looting into uh, museums around the world and particularly throughout the West. And so uh, there are museums being knocked over clearly uh, with the uh, permission of of authorities. And so Christopher asked, of course, Essentially, this must be a feng shui scenario, right? And yes, of course, yes, it would be. obviously, the whole premise uh, of feng shui is that there are uh, areas that have uh, powerful chi that, uh, uh, that the various uh, factions are attempting to uh, control, and that you can burn uh, your opponent's sites and gain uh, power or just undermine their control over the world. So, and that's all the premise you would need to have a bunch of cool fights happen. One of which would have to happen at a tomb. Another uh, could happen in the restaurant, uh, which for this purpose would not be a small nondescript uh, pancake house, but would have to be large enough for a big fight. And you would have, you know, every possible imaginable uh, prop in there from, from your meat cleavers to your boiling oil. You'd have a, it would have to be a giant, banquet hall and perhaps there would be some uh comedy surrounding the idea that the the thieves are required to suddenly at last moment host a banquet for the all the local communist party officials mm-hmm. at the very moment when they they've set the bomb to go off and they have to uh, you know 
go back and forth between preparing the meal and, and uh, doing the heist. And then, of course, the uh, player characters uh, show up with both guns blazing and, and uh, their ghost sorcery powers and, and so on. And so it's easy to imagine. And uh, probably it sounds like there's already probably a Chinese TV show that does everything <laughs> you need to do if you can get a hold of it. And in the age of Netflix, it might show up on Netflix any any day. You can now, say, so. yeah, it, it could it could appear. Obviously, you know, once you are digging in uh, to a Chinese tomb, uh, it, this can also be just even without the feng shui qualities of it. It can be a trigger for a cool horror adventure. You liberate some kind of you know hopping vampire or a Chinese mummy or a terracotta golem that that comes out to to stop people. It can be the inciting episode of a uh, horror adventure that takes place in Shangxi or somewhere else in China, or it can be uh, the beginning of the campaign in which you had people roll up a bunch of colorful Chinese tomb robbing crooks. And then this is the, uh, the inciting incident that drives them into a world of uh, ghosts and demons and uh, netherworld figures that are surprisingly also well-connected in the Chinese communist party. Robin, it's almost as though, there's some sort of deal between the infernal bureaucracy and the communist bureaucracy. What would that be? I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. Right. So basically, when pop culture is already doing our job for us, this is a, a one of the easier ones. And I think uh, we can uh, head back up into the restaurant portion of the archaeology hut. Get some more pancakes. Maybe. Enjoy some lovely, savory pancakes and uh, see what uh, waits for us on the other side of this here commercial. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Ensure that the noodle house next door does not fatally tunnel under this podcast by joining such security-minded Patreon backers as... Ariel Celeste! Jeffrey Pittman! Linda and Mike Schiffer! Peter Nix! And Philip Masters! Why, why, Robin, this, this hut is divided into three or maybe five rooms. And look, there's a proscenium arch. There's some masks on the wall. There's a lot of books, which doesn't, I guess, narrow it down out of most huts. But these books, Robin, are all about going up a tree and dealing with a cat because we're in the narrative hut where beloved Patreon backer Gene Ha has asked you, Robin, you occasionally mention the Western narrative tradition. How dare you? How very dare you? What are some of the alternative 
narrative traditions, and how do you use them in games? Or I suppose, how does one use them in games? Not necessarily. How do you use them? But yeah, let's talk about things besides the Western narrative tradition that begins with Dionysian theater in Athens, runs through uh, the classical novel, and blows up during the Renaissance into basically what we recognize now as the modern romance. And then, as I said in the previous segment, narrows back down to be uh, stories about Iowa writers who can't get it up. So besides that, glorious tradition. What else we got? Right. Well, and just before we move on to besides that, I want to situate why I always say Western narrative tradition when I'm talking about stories and how stories are constructed, which is it's my shorthand way of trying to say that uh, whatever instruction I am giving, whether it's about momentum or escalating at the end or having a petitioner and a grantor in a scene, that I'm not trying to say that all stories have to be like that. And of course, there are many other ways for stories to be. This happens to be a, the one that I have expertise in and can speak to, and that B, an English language audience will receive and understand. And so C is the thing that when we are creating stories, either for comics or written page or the screen or, uh, or role-playing, in fact, that it is what an English-speaking audience is going to be prepared for. So with that caveat that the Western tradition is the one that I know, mm-hmm. let us quickly gloss over the entire rest of the history of storytelling in the entire world and also uh, the stuff that I am less familiar with. And, you know, you could make an entire career out of trying to uh, find all of the common elements in, uh, in these and uh, which are specific to cultures and and. Uh, which are uh, you could probably make several careers kind of universal. Uh, there's no Northrop Fry around to do the the global version of being Northrop Fry. So let's take uh, 15 minutes and take a quick stab at a giant overview from from uh, space. So storytelling generally divides into the sacred and the profane. Uh, storytelling in almost every culture begins as a way of understanding the world through the stories of uh, gods and heroes and is interconnected with uh, ritual. Uh, There are other kinds of uh, lesser stories that are told in cultures, whether these are uh, folk tales or even jokes and anecdotes. Those are stories. The thing that you remember your dog doing 10 years ago that you always tell, that's that's a narrative as well. If you want to go back even to the pre-written world, Uh, Clearly, certain early bits of visual art, like African rock art, are clearly sequential in nature. So, And this is certainly up uh, Gene's alley that there's lots of precursors of graphic novels in all sorts of different uh, cultures. Some Egyptian art is clearly meant to be read as a uh, visual narrative, and that same, same thing about Mayan inscriptions, obviously. Mayan inscriptions, the, the, the Inca codices even have panels. So that's a form of narrative storytelling. The very earliest work that can be considered a modern novel is not from the uh, Western tradition at all, but from uh, Japan. That is the tale of uh, Genji from the 11th century, uh, written by a woman, Mirosaki Shikibu, and it is uh, concerns the life and romances of an emperor's son who's demoted to commoner status. And this is the, the work that moves away from the, the pattern of storytelling, first about being about the divine, about the, the realm of the gods, and is almost uh, uh, exclusively a holy or religious exercise, and then 
It kind of devolves into the epic, which is the adventures of heroes interacting with the gods. And then there's sort of another level of uh, heroic adventure and daring do and mystery and strangeness uh, where there's just heroes and the gods are sort of not necessarily involved anymore. And then finally, as in the tale of Genji, you reach the mimetic world of more or less ordinary people, or in this case, a lofty person who is uh, made ordinary. Right. Uh, so um, if you look all over different cultures, there's all sorts of different cultures that have a, a classic theater tr uh, tradition that is analogous to the, the classics of the Greeks. Uh, so, for example, the, the equivalent period in India is in uh, the 4th century. So there's a corpus of classic Sanskrit plays. Uh, their, their big uh, figure is a writer named Kalidasa. So that's an entire area of narrative that I confess to know essentially nothing about. <laughs> and it's and it's very hard, speaking as someone who set the last third of his game in India, it's very hard to sort of get a handle on from outside. There's not a ton, besides uh, Bollywood movies, which do a great job, um, there's not a ton of sort of Bullfinch's uh, Ramayana, right? Or Bullfinch's Mahabharata. You sort of have to tackle it, you know, all or nothing, or in, in little uh, wild bits. It's, uh, it is an, an entirely different narrative tradition, even though you might think, well, you know, these are just Greeks that turn south instead of west, then, then they have a cool story about fighting gods. Well, it's not the Iliad, my friends. It's a whole different way of understanding things. Japan's theatrical period comes uh, later with their uh, various forms of theater. There's the very formal no theater. There's uh, kabuki. There's bunraku, which is a puppet version of kabuki, where you actually follow the script instead of ad-libbing. Uh, these, again, are often uh, heroic tales of uh, daring do and uh, romance and doomed love. Um, in China, the weird tale that you would recognize from Lovecraft, uh, the uh, Zigwai Chaoshou, uh, begins around 220 and goes out to the end of the Tang Dynasty, around uh, 600. And these are tales of encountering the supernatural out in, out in the woods. And, uh, and, and many of those stories are, uh, are they, they privilege incident, uh, it, again, in a very similar way to Lovecraft and D center, both character and plot They're they're wild to read. And when you think, man, this is some cutting edge stuff. I mean, this was, you know, Western literature doesn't do this until, you know, the twenties and thirties. And then it's like, oh, this is yep. the twenties and thirties of the second century AD that's going yeah. on. Oh, so you thought your original Arthur Machen? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, friend. Yeah. And they're, and they're not just myths and legends, uh, to which one can argue those are sort of a universal habit. And depending on how Levi Straussian you want to get, maybe even have something of a universal architecture. This is where you are down in the weeds of different ways of understanding what, not just what the world is, but also what telling about the world is. Um, you talked about the Indian Sanskrit plays, that tradition flows up and influences Javanese puppet theater. It influences the uh, carvings on the sides of things like Angkor Wat or Borobudur. That Indian storytelling tradition is a, a gigantic uh, wave. And it even also very strongly influences Japan via Buddhism and uh, China because China's between Japan and India. And it has to have gotten uh, a big drink of that as the Chinese uh, uh, scholars, again, in the Tang Dynasty, are going back and forth to India and coming away with what they see as uh, works of primal wisdom. It, it has the same effect on Chinese mythology and story culture uh, that it, it sort of does in the West when uh, Madame Blavatsky and other goofs 
try and insert a Hindu story architecture into the Western model. So on one level, the, the answer to the question, how do we incorporate this into gaming is that if you're talking about tales of weirdness out in the forest or uh, heroes battling one another and falling in love and uh, being dishonored and uh, often with, uh, you know, some acrobatic fight scenes as in Chinese opera, which is another a big theatrical tradition that carries on all of these uh, themes. Uh, that's kind of already the bread and butter of role-playing game material. In fact, you could argue that pop culture's reversion or the, the, the pop culture's embrace of nerd tripping, that the, uh, that the things that uh, the nerdy kids used to like is now the thing everybody likes is essentially culture reverting for what it's been for uh, almost all of its history because we are returning to gods and heroes and monsters and reverting away from the mimetic drama, which still exists, wins Oscars, uh, but doesn't get a lot of uh, attention uh, from the broad spectrum of people because they want fights and, and yes. love and color and the, the, the days of people mobbing the ships at the dock because the new Dickens was in are kind of behind us, I think. And, and of course, Dickens is, is very much in the Gothic adventure tradition anyway, right? Yeah, but he's also doing that uh, as a way of telling mimetic stories, right. he incorporates Gothic elements, but he's very much about the creation of this mimetic tradition, this low-born characters whose lives are just as quotidian as everybody else's. They're just told by Dickens, not by your Aunt Marge, right? Right. And so the, the answer to how to incorporate these is to immerse yourselves in the material, <laughs> yeah. uh, a process which would take many years and a level of cultural understanding uh, that may be as difficult to acquire if you don't already come from it as uh, as it is to, to deal with the stuff. Or you can just look for some cool-seeming snake monsters and put them in uh, D&D. Another thing that I'm thinking that I'm not referring to when I talk about uh, Western <laughs> narrative tradition is... Another thing I don't always say. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm also trying to exclude experimental uh, narrative. So there, there's a Western experimental narrative tradition. It kind of starts with uh, Maldoror by the Comte de Lautremont, which is a classic work of weird fiction, but is essentially plotless. And when you read it, you go, oh, look, it's this is William Burroughs 100 years before William Burroughs. And then, of course, in the modernist era, you get to a whole lot of people who are attempting to blow up core elements of narrative storytelling in order to do something else and what is essentially kind of a uh, an extended prose poem format. And that, of course, includes the Surrealists, includes William Burroughs, uh, J.G. Ballard, some of his works, uh, his narratives collapse. Uh, Michael Moorcock uh, does a version of that in the Jerry Cornelius novels. And in other forms of storytelling, uh, you have similar breakdowns of narrative. So you have non-narrative experimental film, uh, which uh, can include things like Maya Duren's uh, movies, which are overtly surrealist and break down uh, reality and then become the foundation of the music video. Uh, or, which then becomes Michael Bay, speaking of anti-narrative film right. tradition. <laughs> or, you know, and of course, there's equivalence in sequential art as well. So, you know, some of the things that Hart Spiegelman and the Raw Comics crew are doing of breaking comics back down into uh, sort of an artsy experimental world that is not really trying to tell a story, but is using some of those tools. So, you know, when I'm advising people that story does X or Y, well, story does A, B, C, D all the way through uh, Z, and 
there's a, a sort of a core tradition that we're familiar with and talking about on the show, but we have to be aware that there are as many different ways of, of doing stories as there are either uh, cultures and histories or fancy pants experimenters who want to blow it all up. And I guess once we've blown it all up, the only thing we can do is uh, leave the narrative hut tottering on its pillars and sneak through the next commercial. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes in entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing It's time to once again wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs. We'll pause on the landing to wave at the uh, fire cell. Oh, wait a minute. The fire salamander portrait is gone. I see a picture of a xenomorph. Oh, my goodness. I head through the door here, and the parlor of the consulting occultist has been replaced by a creaky uh, futuristic ship with green MS-DOS monitors, and there's water dripping from the from the upper levels, and there's, like, picturesque chains hanging off stuff for no reason, because can mysterious Patreon backer Dave from Washington asks, I just found out that in the classic 1979 science fiction horror film Alien, the spaceship Nostromo's self-destruct panel was legit covered in symbols and references from Madame Blavatsky's philosophical writings. And I'm like, what? That's an amazing bit of Cardis nerd troping right there 30 years before... Cardis even started. So, Ken, uh, I guess the uh, implicit question is, what What? What? what do what? we make of this? What? I mean, first of all, thanks, Dave from Washington, for asking a question that means there can still be a cat in the <laughs> consulting occultist's office. I appreciate that. Also, what? Uh, it is quite the moment when you go to one of the websites that is uh, taken upon itself to clean up the image of the uh, destruct panel and read things like Pronic Lift 777 and Padme, which is not a reference to Queen Amidala, but to the Sanskrit for Lotus. Uh, both Lingam and Yoni show up on the screen, which so someone was thinking about something. There's a Shakti Excess 
button in case there's too much motherhood on the ship, which is a beautiful in-joke that probably was not intended. And uh, lots of other things that it turns out come from cannabis aficionado and set carpenter Simon Deering, who uh, was given the job of building the Nostromo from a sort of a napkin sketch by the first designer. And then every so often, Ridley Scott would come in and say, put more stuff on it. And then at one point, Ridley comes in and he says, we're going to be holding on this one panel for more than a second. So it has to look like something. And then he wanders away. Simon Deering, as I mentioned, uh, has been spending a great deal of this time high and also reading Madame Blavatsky because it was the 70s. And that's the sort of thing you did in the 70s. And he then goes to, I don't know if he goes to her glossary or if he's just pulling stuff at random out of it or out of other books that he has. For example, I'm not sure that Madame Blavatsky mentions the fly agaric mushroom, which is also uh, mentioned on the panel agaric fly. Yeah, that's just part of the background radiation of uh, 70s psychedelic occultism. Exactly, because the button right next to it says trip, so... Uh, I think we know what Simon Deering is up to. And so he takes these terminologies, which to him are at least fun and interesting sounding. No one's going to look at it because no one is ever going to buy a Blu-ray of this movie, freeze frame it, and then put it on the internet so he can just (laughs) put little private jokes into it. Yeah, a VHS freeze frame isn't going to capture anything. Right. Interestingly, uh, Yafet Koto, who of course was in Alien and was magnificent in Alien, was noticing this stuff at the time and was getting ever more creeped out by it, as well as by one assumes the sort of weird Egyptian symbols that Geiger is putting into the the, the planet and uh, all the other sorts of elements of that of that alien necropolis. And Yafet Koto, in fact, went on the website that, that did this and said, finally, someone is taking a picture of that keyboard. I'm, I wasn't crazy. It was full of weird occult nonsense. And also, uh, I've seen UFOs. So at least someone at the time was wigged out by it and, and possibly more than one person, but it was someone who was literally standing on the set, not necessarily any uh, film goers. Uh, they just appreciated the, the, the fun arcana of uh, the keyboard specifically. Right. And to an extent, discovering that there is occultism in the design of Alien because uh, Simon Deering puts him in, does, as you've already sort of suggested, but not quite said, is, well, also H.R. Geeker. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And and another thing, did you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did, did you know that there's uh, Lovecraftian references in it as well? Yes, there are. Also, there's Rorim, which is, I strongly suspect someone was reading Tolkien and put the Rohirrim on. The Akasha, Om, so Om Mani Padmi Hom, the, 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 the mantra of Hindu meditation, that's in there. The word serotonin, just punch that button and get some serotonin. That's fun stuff. Lots of things going on. And of course, particle beam abhort, which is uh, maybe a Lovecraft reference. I'm not sure, but it looks like it might be. It's fun though. So this, I guess, leads us into the realization uh, that of course it does, that the alien uh, movies take place in an alternate universe because their ships are outdated by, you know, 1990 standards. So why why does this futuristic ship uh, still running uh, MS-DOS? And presumably the reason is that theosophy is mainstream and has somehow been merged with technology that the major technologists of this alternate Earth that uh, uh, the Nostromo comes from are uh, deeply theosophical in nature and therefore that held back technological development for centuries and that is why 
everything is uh, terrible and crappy and weird on the Nostromo. And uses because, and, and still uses DOS prompts. And still uses DOS is because everyone in Silicon Valley, as opposed to some people in Silicon Valley, which is true in our <laughs> world, we're into theosophy and that setback technological development. And so if there had ever been the movie that they keep teasing but never quite get to where uh, the aliens get to Earth and it's it's Ripley versus aliens on Earth, that Earth would have been very different and presumably quite theosophical. Yeah, to begin with, at the time, using the, the corporation as Weyland-Yutani uh, was a nod to the then uh, popular theory that the Japanese were going to take us over. But in the fictive world, it might be that because the Japanese had a, a more uh, immediate understanding of uh, Hindu mysticism, thanks again to that cultural substrate we talked about in the earlier segment, that they were able to harness the theosophical technology and that possibly it was Japanese use of theosophical tech that created this second uh, way of knowing, this second batch of industrial concepts and concerns that eventually bled over into making replicants and uh, doing all the other stuff that uh, we know that the corporation is up to and, and that these sort of uh, what we think of as weird gothic science fiction touches are just the natural way that tech evolves, the sort of, you know, Kansai engineering of a world where Blavatsky and uh, Akashic Records are a legitimate place to keep your blueprints. Right, because, for example, it might be necessary since androids don't always seem to realize that they're androids. They may need to go through some sort of spiritual uh, process by which they acquire souls in order to function at all. And that may be, you know, why AI works in that universe is that they've, they, they are essentially tulpas that are created and placed into milky Android bodies. And the AIs on the ships, the reason that they respond and feed back to the emotional qualities of the people on the ships is because, again, as you say, they're tulpas. They're partially kept in existence by the, the pranic links between all the characters' uh, crown chakras. Uh, and, and that's what uh, keeps the computer, you know, active and functioning. And if too many characters get scared and messed up by aliens, well, the computer starts making suboptimal decisions just as it does in every alien movie. And so I think that, I guess, basically leads us to the idea of, uh, you know, world building a, a futuristic theosophical future. And then finally, you can do the scenario where the aliens uh, reach Earth and you've got uh, Ripley, or by that time, multiple Ripleys, right? Fighting aliens in uh, theosophical New York. Yeah, you could you can take the, the Free League alien game, which is an excellent alien game, and use that to uh, go after um, Pichashas and Rakshashas and all kinds of Hindu demons, as well as xenomorphs, and have various reservoirs of prana that blow up and create all manner of other bad problems. Um, I mean, you think that Chernobyl is bad. Wait until um, uh, there's a giant radioactive key leak all over Europe. That's not good. Well, when prana begins to explode, uh, it's our policy uh, to end an episode of our podcast, but our podcast only ends a little bit because we'll be back uh, next week with a whole new assortment of uh, weirdness, elliptony, and gaming. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Ask the Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Protect this podcast from Blavatskyite chestbursters by joining beloved Patreon backers Andrew Dacey. Volpine. Derek Yates. Taylor Harless. 
And Gwendolyn Schmidt. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Remind your group of the number one rule of role-playing in our latest design, Never Forget the Snacks. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>